Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Misaligned. As our usual reminder, Misaligned is part of the Modern Va- Modern Vinyl family of podcasts. You can find all of the shows over at modern-vinyl.com and you can check out other shows like the Modern Vinyl podcast, which has been going on the longest of all of the podcasts we have over there. And they have some great interviews up right now. I know recently they did an episode with Andy Hull about the Swiss Army Man soundtrack, and I'm blanking on the name of the other guy who was on that podcast. But either way, you should check it out. And today we are going to be talking a lot about 90s music, but before we do that, we have just a couple of announcements here. So Megan, why don't you kick us off with the first one? Yes. So if you remember a few weeks ago, Caitlin talked about having her Defend Girls Not Pop Punk campaign. It is back on Teespring, and she actually has a bunch of new designs. Well, not necessarily designs, but more like more things available to purchase with the Defend Girls Not Pop Punk logo on it. She has t-shirts, she has tank tops, and there is a hoodie available. And as with all Teespring campaigns, if the campaign doesn't get funded with the specific item you want, your money will be refunded. Uh, Let's see, 25% of the sales from this month on will be going to Planned Parenthood, which is very, very awesome. Definitely. And the second announcement we have real quick here that will lead us into our discussion is Saved by the 90s, which is basically a party at Webster Hall. It's all about 90s music. And this was actually brought to my attention through a press release that I received. And I was like, well, that goes perfectly with this week's episode. So I just wanted to bring that to your guys's attention. If you guys live in New York or even Jersey, I believe they do take a couple of the shows out to Jersey. I think one is gonna going to be in Asbury Park. So definitely head out there, check that out. I'm sure it'll be a ton of fun. I'm a little bummed we don't have something like that over here. But anyway, that well, it happens. That leads us right into our discussion of 90s music this week. And I went about looking up, you know, those best albums lists as usual. And Pitchfork and Rolling Stone both had done their top 100 albums of the 90s. And their lists were a lot more different than I was expecting them to be, like on... Pitchfork, Dr. Dre's The Chronic was, I believe, listed at number 79, and Rolling Stone had it at number two. So obviously, there's a big difference there in, you know, music taste from the writers and everything. But Megan, I know you have a little story that you want to go with this. So why don't you go ahead and go with that? Oh, yeah. So, you know, here we are in 2016, and it is an Olympic year. So 20 years ago, back in 1996, not that this has anything to do with music or anything, but you know, 90s, good things to talk about. But uh, yeah, my mom got me a really cool Cabbage Patch Kid, and the doll had its own little Olympic uniform, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I'm pretty sure it's packed up in storage somewhere. But anyway, I was born in 1991, so that makes me a 90s kid. And I still can't let go of some of the best 90s jams, you know, besides the Disney soundtracks, because we all know that the 90s Disney soundtrack era is amazing. I mean, sure, 
Moana's coming out soon, and Lin-Manuel Miranda's behind that one, and I mean, there's Frozen with Dina Menzel, but nothing tops the Disney soundtracks of the 90s. I mean, The Lion King, Pocahontas, Beauty and the Beast, I could ramble on and on about this, which could be another potential podcast idea for another day, but anyway, yeah, 90s jams. They're still really good to listen to today, and what's really cool is that we're actually entering a time period where a lot of stuff from the 90s can be classified into that classic age, which is weird because you think you would think to yourself, oh, well, this song came out, what, like five years ago? There's no way it's 20 years old. And then you look at the year it was released and you go, oh, this is what it's like to get old. And this, in part, this nostalgic wave is is becoming pretty popular. I mean, you've seen BuzzFeed posts about why 2016 is a lot like 1996. This week on the AV Club, they're revisiting the year 1996. And I only found that out today. So this is a last minute addition to this 90s music themed podcast. But going back to that, this nostalgia factor... VH1 Classic just rebranded as MTV Classic last week, and they're bringing back some of the 90 shows that people watched back in the day on both VH1 and MTV, and I should note that these are both Viacom-owned networks, and Viacom seems to really be cashing in on this nostalgia factor, uh, especially if you take a look at Teen Nick's block of The 90s Are All That, which features classic 80s and 90s shows that we all grew up with, like uh, the Nicktoons, some game shows, I mean, Legends of the Hidden Temple, things like that. But with MTV Classic, it's actually going back to the music, which sounds like a weird tagline for a show that I once saw on VH1. Um, but besides that, they are focusing on the music. I saw blocks with classic music videos, I believe that the channel relaunched airing the original programming that aired the first day MTV was on the air. Now, granted, that was in the 80s, but it was still when MTV focused on music. And we're seeing even the classic rock stations picking up on 90s tunes, which is still weird to me because I'll hear something on a classic rock station and just think, oh my god, why? This isn't classic rock. There's no way. I heard a Beastie Boys song on a classic rock station the other day, which is also weird because the alt-rock stations still play a lot of this stuff in heavy rotation amongst the new stuff. So that's why it's also like, uh, oh, is it really that old type thing? Right. So now that I've rambled on, I think we can (laughs) fully, fully discuss everything now. Yeah, well, I kind of wanted to start with, you know, like the boy band era and Britney Spears and that sort of thing, because that really felt like the first time I started liking my own music, I guess you could say, because, you know, you were born in 91, I was born in 92. So we spent the 90s in the under 10 bracket. So we weren't exactly, you know, developing our own music tastes at five years old or six years old, necessarily. It was kind of just, at least for me, whatever my parents had on the radio and that sort of thing. And even then, I don't recall what exactly they listened to in the 90s. So I feel like other than the boy bands and Britney Spears era, it's like, I feel like I listened to 90s music 
a lot more now than I did actually in the 90s. And I feel like, you know, with the boy bands and Britney, those albums, it's like because we were kids, those albums were, you know, the the fun pop songs and that sort of thing. So they really resonated with that time period. But I feel like maybe those don't necessarily hold up as well as some of these other releases do. Do you feel the same way or do you still, you know, go back and listen to NSYNC and Backstreet Boys? Oh my gosh, I am such a 90s music junkie. It's ridiculous. (laughs) I mean... I will still go back and listen to some of these songs as workout songs because they're still good. Right. I think that the music of the 90s, particularly the pop music, holds up a little better than current pop music of today. Like it was more manufactured back in the 90s, I guess you could say, because you had people actually doing casting calls for bands to be like, hey, we want you to get together. Kind of like how the Spice Girls formed. Right. And now you've got reality shows putting people together i mean look at one direction yeah. they pretty much got their start on the x factor i feel like in the 90s it was a little more genuine it was a little more okay we're going to put these people together maybe they'll sound good together but if not you know their their looks will get them by yeah I mean, and i feel like a lot of that really hit everyone hard in the early 2000s more so than the 90s because you know in the 90s NSYNC and Britney had their first albums and then didn't release anything again until at least 2000. So it's like they had these really big first albums and first impressions that they had to make on us for us to, you know, keep listening through the early to mid 2000s or even, you know, still with Britney or, you know, Justin Timberlake, even though their sounds have changed so much since being those young pop stars. I mean, it's it's a simple evolution. Right. It is clear to hear that evolution. Like, Britney got her start as the pop princess of the world. She was just innocent enough to be bubblegum pop. But as she got older, her sound evolved more into a club-based sound. Right. And her music started oozing and dripping with just raw sexuality. If you take a look... Or if you even take a listen to what she's put out today, it's almost unrecognizable. And that's weird. Right. Like, I'm all for really good dance songs, but I think her classic pop style holds up a little more than the overly auto-tuned electronic sound. Yeah, and I mean, she's one that just literally, within the last week, had a single come out. So, you know... Obviously, she had two. She had two come out. Yeah, I th- I think Private Show is the latest one, and she had another one not too long before that. But like you said, listening to you know those songs compared to you know Hit Me Baby One More Time or something like that, it's just like pop is in a completely different world now than it was back in the late 90s, early 2000s, even though we have gradually seen it change, if you just take, like, one song from each end, it's pretty drastic when you think about it. This is true. And even looking at the boy band era, boy bands, sure, they had the nice sexuality appeal to them that was like, oh, look at us. We can be shirtless. We can sing songs about sex. I mean, the Backstreet Boys... I remember that they had edited videos on the Disney Channel. (laughs) I mean, 
uh, everybody Backstreet's Back, Disney aired their music video for that song, which is a classic, which is awesome. Who would ever not want to watch a music video where there's a weird, freaky mansion involved and it's like Halloween themed? But they took out the line that Nick Carter just, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not croon and it's not screech, but the lyric, am I sexual? I remember them editing that out, and I was a little confused as a kid, just like, oh, well, this is on the CD, but why aren't they airing this on the TV channel that I'm watching? Right. Um, and Sync was at least a little more goody-goody, I'd say, about with what they did. And then if you look at boy bands today, Five Seconds of Summer gets classified as a pop-punk band and sings songs about how girls look good standing there in their underwear. Right. Also, they're just a garbage band that I don't <laughs> like. But then there's, well, the aftermath of the Jonas Brothers. They had that squeaky clean Disney image that made, you know, the kind of followed in the path of NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys. And even Hanson, which I'm going to talk about in just a minute. Hanson is an important band to talk about in this podcast. Um, but they had that squeaky clean image. And then... This was also in the era where they talked about the purity rings in the 2000s at some point, which the boy bands of the 90s didn't talk about. And then there was that whole fiasco with Justin and Britney. Uh, not even going to get into that. Right. <laughs> but it's you see that the aftermath of the boy bands is going straight into a Britney, pulling the let's try to do more dancey things let's try to embrace our sexuality more and that i don't know that's still weird to me because you could even see it jc chaze tried to do that a little after nsync justin timberlake at least was successful about it he brought sexy back there's no denying that but yeah you, you get what i'm trying to say over here right yeah and i mean even you know with the ones who did go on to do solo careers I think they realized how different it was and they realized that very quickly because a lot of them, you know, only had maybe an album or two before it kind of fizzed out. And you can see with Justin how he's kind of changed his style with each album that he's released. I mean, obviously with 2020, it was part one and part two, so those were going to be more similar. Yeah, but they still had different sounds. But just from Justified to that, you could see, yeah, you could see how different they were because, you know, Justified was definitely still trying to keep that pop vibe. Boy band sound. Right. I mean, that's the album Senorita's on, right? Yeah. Because that's still a jam. That's honestly one of my post-boy band favorites of Justin's. Yeah, and then you move on and you get to 2020 and he has, you know, a horn section and this whole big band behind him. And he's really like going for that Memphis kind of sound as opposed to the generic pop radio sound. But if you look at his new single, it kind of does have that generic pop sound of today. You're talking about Even the if- Trolls soundtrack though, right? Yes, even though it is on a Trolls movie soundtrack. <laughs> and I mean, that's probably why, too. You know, he, obviously he wrote the song 
for the movie and is going to be on that soundtrack. So it'll be interesting to see what he's working on for himself right now. True. I mean, if you look back at the 2020 experience, oh, that was such a grown-up sound, and I loved it so much. (laughs) Nick Jonas trying to do the grown-up sound thing? Eh, Not so much. Right. Actually, I don't even think the Backstreet Boys, any of them really did a solo career except for Nick. And if we're going to talk about Nick, we should at least mention Aaron, who in particularly in the late 90s, really got his start as a solo artist and has kind of been weird about social media. At one point, he followed me on Twitter, and I thought that was cool, and then he unfollowed me, and I was really sad. (laughs) And then went, whatever, that's just less things to fill up my feed. No big deal. But going back, Hanson, they are kind of an anomaly with the pop sound. They weren't necessarily as manufactured as the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. They were a family band, much like the Jonas Brothers. They had some great songs, and, like, they they wrote their songs. They genuinely wrote about the issues that they cared about as youngsters, and they all had great hair. Oh, my gosh, the hair on those boys. <laughs> See, I never really listened to them, but recently there was this show going on called Greatest Hits, and they basically would take a five-year period or six-year period, like 90 to 95 and then, you know, like 96 to 2000, whatever, however they split it up. And they had mm-hmm. Hanson come on and perform. And they did Mbop, which is like their big song, obviously. And it's oh, literally yeah. the only song I believe I know by them. And I don't even really remember why I know it. But you Probably can definitely it's tell it's, song. <laughs> you can definitely tell because they're brothers. It was a totally different dynamic with them, and you can still tell that today when they play that song. Yeah, and the big thing about them is that they still are performing together, which I think is cool. And they've kind of evolved their sound to be more of an alternative indie rock band than, well, pop. Right. A lot of their newer stuff is actually really good, and I think it's up there in terms of bands like Augustana, and it's it's good for, you know, a casual adult palette, and they even got more handsome as they grew older, so it's <laughs> they're still nice to look at, and sounds horrible, but, you know, it happens. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, before we do an entire podcast about boy bands. Yes, I was just about to say, we need to flip and talk about the ladies. Right. You have Spice Girls on your list. I actually don't have any ladies on my list. I was just kind of going with a bunch of the albums that were on the Rolling Stone and Pitchfork list and pulling out ones that kind of stuck out to me. But You have Spice Girls. We did talk about Britney Spears briefly. And I mean, like I said, she only had the one album. So it's kind of really hard to consider her a huge force for having one album in 1999, I believe, is when Baby One More Time came out. Really? I was thinking it was out in 98. Or maybe, like I don't know. I just feel like a grandma right now. I think when I looked, it said 99 and NSYNC was out in like 97, 98. So I think, you know, those few years kind of just all blend together. They do. The elementary school years, they're wonderful. (laughs) But I mean, we can't talk about 90s music without the impact of the Spice Girls. A few months ago, I wrote an MV... 
not an Envy Recommends, wow, um, a random pool piece about the first album of the Spice Girls. And for young girls everywhere in the 90s, this was pretty much their first foray into feminism. The concept of girl power was widely touted. I mean, they even came out with a movie that is still a cinematic gem, and I will fight anyone who says otherwise. Um, (laughs) But they really took what it meant to be in a world surrounded by guys and to make it your own and to not be afraid to express who you are. If you go into some of their music, okay, yeah, I probably shouldn't have listened to it as a small child because it's deeply sexual. I mean, there is a song on the first album called To Become One. Well, older me clearly understands that that is (laughs) two people literally becoming one in a very sexual act, which probably corrupted young me without even trying to. Um, Anyway, but they took this appeal and they made it, they spread it through the masses. I'm currently actually reading a book about women in the 90s music world called uh, Girl Power. And it focuses on various aspects of females in the music industry, but it does briefly talk about the Spice Girls. They're important. They're still important. 20 years later, my God, I wish they would reunite and do a 20-year reunion tour because that would actually be really cool. And you know people would go to it because even when they performed at the Olympics, it's like everyone was so excited about that performance, even if it was, you know... I was so sure. excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was so excited. I was so happy when I saw that. But I actually have in the notes in our doc right now that, yes, I listened to a lot of pop music as a small child. But as I got older, I actually began to revisit more of the alternative albums of the 90s. In particular, uh, Liz Fair, Exile and Guyville. That is still an album that holds up quite nicely today. I love it. And it goes back into that whole feminist thing. She had a lot of songs about angst and relationships and everything. And something I wouldn't have listened to as a small child. It wouldn't have interested me. But now it does. And it's great. I mean, you look at artists like Bjork. You look at artists like uh, a lot of the female punk bands. Bikini Kill, Kathleen Hanna, all them. They paved the way for music today, which is awesome. And then, of course, if we're going to actually talk about straight-up pop, there is uh, Aqua's Gem of Aquarium, featuring the very classic hit Barbie Girl. A lot of the artists I listened to in the 90s were surprisingly female-fronted, or a lot of the bands, I should say, had females leading the helm. And in part, that probably had a lot to do with how I grew up as a person, But when you think of the 90s, you do think boy bands and Spice Girls, but you forget that there were all these other amazing artists out there. I mean, Aqua, besides Barbie Girl, they had some really good songs on Aquarium. I mean, Dr. Jones, I love running to Dr. Jones. And In the Heat of the Night, oh, that Spanish flair on that song gets me every time. I will probably re-listen to that album when I am done recording tonight. (laughs) I'm pretty sure the only song I know from them is Barbie Girl, because it's the one that's always played. Yeah, I mean, the music video is a little weird for that, but they're Swedish. Right. Oh my gosh, now I need to look up something. Speaking of Swedish artists, I'm not sure if the 18s had their first album of 
ABBA cover songs come out in the 90s, or if that was early 2000s, because even that, 99 through the early aughts, that does kind of blend together too. Yeah, they formed in 98 as a tribute band to them. So even if the album wasn't necessarily out right away, they were... The Generation probably came out in 99. Yeah, it did. And then in the early 2000s is when they really started to do, you know, their own pop stuff. Actually transitioned into their own pop stuff and Elvis covers. I feel like a lot Hmm. of people do Elvis covers, so it's kind of hard to judge someone for doing those. (laughs) Well, I mean, in their defense, they did do one Elvis cover, and it was for the Lilo and Stitch soundtrack. Nice. Yes. That's actually probably my favorite Elvis cover. Yeah. And I've noticed we have very different lists here, with the exception of the Blue Album by Weezer, which also is known as their self-titled, I believe. Aren't they all self-titled except for Pinkerton? I think so, but they tend to just call them by the color of the album. So, you know, they have the white album, a green album, whatever. And then that just makes me think of Jay-Z's The Black Album. (laughs) I have a lot of rap artists listed on here because in the 90s, that's when we really saw kind of, I wouldn't say a lot of rivalries happening in rap but it's you know some of the big ones like Tupac and Biggie and you know Suge Knight wanting to shoot everyone and all this crazy stuff oh, happening yeah. in rap Eminem music. Eminem recently come out and say that Suge Knight wanted him murdered. I don't even follow anymore. I think I saw that the other day. Tupac, Biggie, and Nas all had huge albums come out in the 90s and obviously that's also when we lost two of the three of them i believe two of the three but yeah Nas is still alive and kicking right and then you also have you know some of the 80s people still coming over into the 90s when you have public enemy releasing fear of a black planet you have ll cool j with mama said knock you out and it was like kind of two different styles going on at the same time in rap music you have these artists who started in the 80s and kind of have more of that hip-hop vibe instead of the gangster rap vibe, which, you know, obviously became bigger in the 90s. So it was just interesting to see how many of these artists had such big albums in the 90s. And I do want to note here, though, that I could have put a ton of country albums on here, but I get the feeling that most of our listeners do not listen to country so and i'm gonna be over here just complaining about that it's so honky tonk and i i also noticed that i don't think either of the lists pitchfork or rolling stone really included all that many if any country albums they probably went more the folk americana side of things i mean if we are gonna briefly talk about 90s music and country music we need to give a shout out to shania twain that was the main one I was thinking about because three of her four albums came out in the 90s and she just destroyed everyone with her music videos. Like, I can't think of any other 90s country artist that had better music videos than Shania Twain. This is true. And she was actually one of the few country artists I listened to as a kid. Man, I feel like a woman still. It's a good song today. <laughs> My brother still enjoys singing it, actually. It's really funny. And 
there's also the Dixie Chicks. They had a huge impact. Yeah, on music and, too in the '90s, and they definitely fall under the more like political side of things. They're very outspoken, especially Natalie. And I mean, I just saw somewhere that they were like making fun of Trump at their latest concert or whatever and they had him with like devil horns and a mustache and all these crazy things oh my god i can only imagine what what 90s music would have been like if trump was running in the 90s (laughs) we would be having an entirely different discussion right now honestly yeah and you know aside from shania a lot of the 90s country artists that were big in the 90s are still big now i mean you have you know trisha yearwood reba Martina McBride, Tim McGraw, you know, Toby Keith, and all these people that have still kept their careers going. Maybe not as much. Obviously, Reba had her TV show at some point in between all of this. And Martina McBride kind of, you know, does stuff here and there. She actually somewhat recently had like a covers album that she did. And it was a nice take to see because it wasn't her covering country songs necessarily. And I feel like she's one of the few that can do so many different things with her voice that she doesn't necessarily have to sing country for it to sound good. If that makes any sense at all. It does. That does make sense. And then of course there was Leanne Rimes who now is dating, married to, I don't know, a former actor, TV, whatever reality person. And just, She's basically fallen out of the spotlight as a country music star. I actually just saw her last year or the year before. So she like huh. she's still doing stuff. She'll um you know tour, play amphitheaters and that sort of thing. And I I don't think she's working on anything new right now. But I think she's I feel just like focusing lo- on life with Eddie. Yeah, a lot of the artists from the 90s, it's like, at this point, they don't really have to do stuff as consistently as the newer artists, you know? So They're still legendary. Yeah, and I mean, you see Garth Brooks, you know, retire, come out of retirement, retire, come out of retirement, and now he's going and on have this his alter huge ego. tour. Yeah. And then when you mentioned Reba earlier, mm-hmm. the first thing that came to mind, like, in recent times is her remake of Kelly Clarkson's Because of You. Right. She... She actually did a good job with that song and had Kelly on. I actually still hear that on the radio today, and I love it. Have you heard her cover of Beyonce's If I, what, if I Were a Boy? No. It's actually pretty good. And oh I don't gosh. like it when people cover Beyonce. <laughs> um. Okay, Chris Farron covered Beyonce's XO, and it is my favorite Beyonce cover. So See, shout out to that awesome punk celebrity for yeah, making John that cover. Yeah, John Mayer covered that too, and I actually do like that cover as well. So I shouldn't say I usually don't, but more yeah. often than not, I just rather have Beyonce sing Beyonce songs. And, you know, good moving on here, you know, I'm looking at our lists and they are a little different. We are actually missing some very, very classic artists. You've got a lot of the hip hop on your list. I have a lot of the pop. But there's also the R&B artists of the 90s. Right. And Mariah Carey, who isn't singing anymore, which is kind of sad. She had a really great voice. The 90s was really her time to shine. And the introduction of artists like Brandy and Monica and rappers like Lil' Kim and Missy Elliott. And it's interesting to note that with your list, you have some of the big, big, big 
really big rap albums, but are missing artists on there like Jay-Z and even Busta Rhymes. Like, who could forget Busta Rhymes and his crazy music videos from the 90s? (laughs) I mean, I did scroll through more than just this list. And obviously, you know, Mariah Carey with Emotions, that was a huge, huge album for her. And that came out in the early 90s. And she had, let's see, seven albums come out throughout the 90s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a lot for a 10-year period. That really is. And, of course, there's also, oh, my gosh, when did this come out? Whitney Houston. Whitney was a huge part of the 90s as well. We're talking about powerful, powerful voices. Mariah and Whitney are some of the two that really, really stand out to me. And on top of that, she was in one of the remakes of Cinderella with Brandy, when Mm -hmm. Brandy was Cinderella. And, oh, she had a great song in that movie. I can't think of what it was. I, like, I can hear it in my head, but I just can't think of what it was called. But Whitney, her legacy, amazing. In 92, when you were born, And I Will Always Love You came out. Right. I mean, that's one of, honestly, the eponymous songs of the 90s. Let's see. She had actually two albums come out in the span of 1990 to 1999. And the one from 1998 is My Love Is Your Love, which was more dance themed right now i'm gonna be singing that song and when oh wait and the song that was in my head actually wasn't from cinderella it was from the prince of egypt it's uh when you believe and she actually duetted with mariah carey on that right probably one of the best duets of the 90s i'd say but the 90s were also the time of the diva era sure we've got christina now but VH1 had the Divas specials and put all these talented women on stage together and they put on an amazing performance. I think that actually will get aired on MTV Classic as well. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I was doing my list based on, you know, the two that I looked at real quick. And I feel like if I had done a huge deep dive into the 90s, I could have come up with so many more albums. But I don't know why exactly Rolling Stone and Pitchfork didn't really include, you know, country or R&B. They had a lot of rap, pop, and rock in there. But I feel like, well, also Pitchfork had a lot of more obscure things, I would say, as they usually do. I think that's definitely something Pitchfork is known for. They don't tend to promote, you know, like these big, big albums unless it's something they really like and... With Rolling Stone, I felt like they did have a lot more variety. Like they had Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, which is another huge album for the 90s. And these are just two top 100 lists, and they were completely different. So if we went through and really went over each and every artist that we enjoyed from the 90s, this podcast would have to be like, you know, five hours long or something. <laughs> so, Oh my gosh, so true, so true. Yeah. I mean, when I put together my list, I kind of just walked into my brother's room where my CD collection is just hanging out and looked at some of my CDs. Yeah, see, I didn't even look at any of my CDs. I was just like, okay, I know these artists were definitely heavy on the 90s releases and that sort of thing. And you know, I mentioned Weezer earlier, and I have Weezer, Green Day, Nirvana, Blink-182, and Oasis doesn't exactly fall into quite the same category, but 
Oasis obviously had, you know, Wonderwall, Supernova Champagne, and definitely maybe in What's the Story, Morning Glory, were there huge albums. And both of those came out in the 90s. And then with Green Day, you have Dookie, which is the album that they blew up with. And that somehow was not on Pitchfork's list, which upset me just a tad bit because Green Day is one of my favorite bands pre the trio of albums that they released in 2012. Uno, dos, tres. Yeah. And Nirvana had both Nevermind and In Utero come out in the 90s. Nevermind was number one on Rolling Stones list. So obviously that's an album that people still love today. And I mean, I even bought it on vinyl recently because I somehow did not have that in my collection. And I was kind of like, shame on me. Why do I not have this, you know? And then Blink's Enema of the State, another huge pop punk album. And I feel like since that is a genre a lot of people who listen to this podcast probably enjoy at least a little bit or a lot in some cases, I felt like Green Day and Blink really needed to be on the list, especially because those are the sort of bands I started listening to when I really started to develop my own music tastes. This is true. And they were two artists that were pretty groundbreaking, or they were two releases that were pretty groundbreaking in the genre itself. Right. And then you look at the bands today, and it's just like, oh, the Gallagher brothers are feuding, have their own musical endeavors, and are potato. They use the word potato as an insult, which I think is the funniest thing ever. I think it was... Liam called his brother a potato. Or maybe it was the other way around. But he wasn't happy. Like, I call my brother a potato all the time, but I don't use it as a term of being really mean and spiteful. I just use it as a funny term, also because he looked like a potato as a small child, but you know. Right. And then Green Day is just off in a different direction of what they started out with. I haven't listened to their new single yet, but apparently I haven't heard really anything bad about it. Right. And And then there's Blank. (laughs) Yeah. And you mentioned in the notes, Punk Goes 90s, which, you know, the Punk Goes is a series that Fearless has been doing for quite some time now. And And now it's garbage. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, Punk Goes 90s just kind of goes to show that these songs still mean something to people, you know, and Let's see, they did Punk Goes 90s Volume 2 back in 2014. Did they really? Yes. Somehow I missed that. And that had, you know, newer fearless bands like Get Scared, Chunk No, Captain Chunk. Oh, but it also had Mayday Parade and Yellow Card. Like Yellow Card did Today by the Smashing Pumpkins, which was a huge song and another band we didn't mention. Oh my gosh, we can't even, we have to mention the Smashing Pumpkins at least once in this thing. <laughs> I mean, really. But, oh, oh, looking at this track listing on Punko's 90s too, okay, there's a reason why I didn't listen to it. Punko's yeah. 90s, the first one, is a little more interesting in which they have May, who is usually a more quiet reserve band, doing Nine Inch Nails' March of the Pigs. It's a vastly different May song than others in their discography. And I mean, let's see, Cartel's version of Wonderwall is one of my favorite versions of Wonderwall, yeah. period. And stop. Perfect. Um, let's see. 
Depeche Mode done by Anne Berlin. Oh, yes, Bjork. A Bjork song makes it onto Punk Goes 90s done by The Starting Line. Right. And going back to the Nirvana thing, Kevin Devine actually covered um, a Nirvana album. I think the entire thing is streaming somewhere on SoundCloud. But he... Let's see, Kevin Devine, Nirvana, if I... Google that really quickly. I don't want to open iTunes. <laughs> well, speaking of Nirvana, even the cover for Punk Goes 90s is a play on Nirvana's Nevermind cover with the baby swimming true. in the water. And this cover, this the baby has true. a mohawk. So, you know, yeah, that just kind of goes to show how Nirvana influenced so many bands yeah, that are I in mean, the pop punk grunge rock genres now. Kevin Devine covered Nevermind. And it's really good. I actually remember seeing him, was it two years ago, when he did a very long acoustic set in Richmond, post Bonnaroo, which was awesome. But he talked about just how much of an impact Nirvana had on his life. And his cover album is spectacular. Honestly, if you haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend it because it's, ugh, everything that man does is wonderful. And he just announced a new album and a tour today, coincidentally. Yes, he did. Today he being did Monday, for anyone wondering, we are not recording on our usual Sunday because these big announcements do not happen on Sundays. <laughs> True. And actually, this should have gone in our news section because he's touring with Petal and Julian Baker. Yeah. Which is really awesome. Oh, I didn't want to open Punk Goes Acoustic 2. Oh, right. <laughs> and in the punk, going back to the Punk Goes series, by the way. They did a lot of 90s songs on the Best Punk Goes album of the whole series, Punk Goes Crunk. Right. I mean, Max Bemis does uh, Old Dirty Bastards Got Your Money, which is awesome. And The Secret Handshake does the Skibo classic I Wish, or Ski Low. I'm sorry. That's Skibo. Ski Low. Um, the Ski Low classic I Wish. And there's a lot more Tupac on here. California Love by My American Heart. Let's see. Oh, The Seed 2.0 by Person L. Biggie's Notorious Thugs done by Scary Kids Scaring Kids. Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg's Nothing But a G-Thang. Oh, what a great album. Yeah, and, you know, they even did a punk goes 80s album too so you know they're kind of covering all of their bases with the punk goes series here and there have punk been goes 80s is also very good yeah there have been quite a few of these punk goes releases they did you know it started with punk goes metal which isn't necessarily a huge leap with some of the bands that are on fearless now like you know motionless and white and those sort of bands that lean on the heavier side in general but some of the Punk Goes Pop ones were pretty good, even though they are up to, I believe it is volume six on that now. But it looks like they haven't released any since 2014. Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully. But yeah, like the original Punk Goes Pop, that came out in 2002 and it covered the Backstreet Boys. It covered a lot of artists from the early aughts. And then there's Rufio doing Madonna's Like a Prayer. And Yellow Card covering Michelle Branch is fantastic. (laughs) But she does... Oh, man, there's a Faith Hill cover on this album. We forgot to mention Faith Hill. Yes, another glowing 90s country artist. And I mean, she's another one that hasn't really been doing 
too much music wise lately and obviously you know she's married to tim mcgraw so it's like they don't both need to keep making albums to make a living basically you know if just one of them does it it's fine and that sort of thing and the two of them would you know tour together i believe they did that at least two or three times and i know i think they even did a vegas stint for a little while which is something shania twain did semi-recently and then that was you know it for her she hadn't released an album since 2002 so she kind of just did some shows here and there and then decided to do i believe it was two years in vegas maybe Hmm. i don't know i mean britney is now doing the vegas circuit which is pretty cool and she's obviously like we mentioned working on new music now Yes, isn't her new album called Glory Days or something like that? Or maybe that's a single? I believe that's the album title. Okay, because I think there's just a lot of people upset about the actual album cover itself. It's actually just called Glory. Okay, I was close enough. (laughs) You had the word in there, so. (laughs) Close enough. Yeah. All right, well, I think that is a good spot to wrap it up with the 90s with Britney Spears still working on new music. Do you want to go ahead and give us your recommendation for the week? Yes. This week, I'm not going to give y'all a music-related recommendation because it is the Olympics week. (laughs) Uh, At the time of recording, there have only been two fencing events so far. I am basically the number one fencing fan of this whole podcast. Um, (laughs) Can confirm. (laughs) Yes. Well, I'm going to bring up fencing because, A... Ibtihaj Muhammad fence today and she is just an awesome lady and great inspiration to the whole like whole world if you don't know who she is she is the first U.S. athlete to compete in a hijab in the Olympics and came in second place to being the flag bearer for the U.S. up against Michael Phelps and yesterday was the men's foil event I mean there's three subsets of fencing I'm not going to bore y'all with the details but in that event, in the individual foil, Alex Masialis brought home the first medal for the men's team in years, since I think like 1984 or something, but he brought home a silver medal, which is really, really cool. And then later this week, there are other events like the women's foil, women's, let's see, uh, women's foil saber and team events, men's epe has to go up, men's saber still has to go up. It's, there's a lot. But by the time you guys hear this podcast, hopefully there is still stuff to watch. Like you can stream it online through the NBC Sports app or you can watch it on TV. But because this is an obscure sport that isn't as popular as, say, basketball or gymnastics, it won't necessarily get as much TV coverage. So go watch the Olympics. You won't regret it. I'll pretend I I understood all those event titles you said. (laughs) Yeah. Well... We can always just go back to talking about basketball or soccer or even uh, how this year is the first time that rugby is back in the games. Or maybe it's the first time it's in the games. I don't know. But uh, apparently the women did a good job yesterday in the Rugby Sevens event. They tied Australia, moved on to the next round only to get beaten by New Zealand. But rugby, it's fun to watch. I can't confirm the that. <laughs> the men in their uh, little rugby shorts. It's like the <laughs> how people watch beach volleyball solely to objectify the women in bikinis, which I don't know. But yes, go watch the Olympics. 
Yes. Yesterday, my Twitter feed was full of swim tweets because Michael Phelps won like his 23rd gold medal or something insane at this point. I thought it was like his 19th individual medal. I don't know. And Katie Ledecky just being an unhuman like person and killing it out there. Right. I think it was 19th gold and maybe 23rd overall or something like that. Because I think he does have a few that aren't gold medals. Yeah. And I think this was Katie's second medal of the games. This yeah. Year. And she broke her own world record. She's awesome. Yeah. Well, other than the Olympics, I also have a recommendation for something you can watch. And that would be Stranger Things on Netflix. It's eight episodes. It's very 80s style, you know takes place in the 80s you have Winona Ryder in the show as one of the moms and basically what happens is her son goes missing and there's this lab facility nearby that is essentially to blame for all of this stuff and I don't want to give too much away other than that because it was just such a fun show to watch and it's like I watched the first episode one night and then the next day I watched the final seven episodes pretty much all in a row i might have stopped one or two times to you know like go to the bathroom and make food to make sure i ate something that day but i'm definitely looking forward to see how they have a season two of this basically because i felt like they did such a great job with the first season that they really have to think of something even crazier to make the second season just as good and it definitely had, you know, like that E.T. kind of vibe to it. And I know that movie is a little out to date, outdated for a lot of people. So um, we did just do a podcast about nostalgia. So yes, keeping the theme going here, guys. But yeah, if you have not checked that out, I definitely recommend at least giving the first episode a try. And I'm sure once you do that, you will want to continue watching it. It's definitely very well done. And even the music in the show is fantastic. And I th- aren't they pressing the soundtrack possibly? Did yes. I see something about that? Yeah, I believe they are. I don't recall if it's Mondo or another place, but it's definitely happening and I might have to get that. And I'm not even a soundtrack person, but this show was just so good that I was like, oh, I might need this soundtrack. See, I haven't watched it yet. I'm so behind, but I've heard nothing but good things about it. I haven't even caught up on my other Netflix stuff. I just, like, pushed everything aside and sat down and watched this. (laughs) You know, I haven't even watched the new season of Bloodline or Orange is the New Black or finished Transparent Season 2 or Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So I just kind of pushed everything aside for a day and just watched this. Makes sense. All right. Well, that covers it for today. As always, thank you to our listeners, and we hope you enjoy the rest of the day.